All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Ball Girls. So today we have a very special guest. He's a former OHL and professional hockey player playing in both the U.S. and Europe. So this is Brock McGillis. He is the first openly gay professional hockey player, and he's become an influential advocate for the LGBTQ community. So he speaks at schools, other corporations, conferences, events, and provides inclusivity training for companies. He also works closely with Yahoo, doing like Facebook Lives and even wrote an article and things like that. So we're super excited to have you here today with us, Brock. Yeah, thanks for having me. Did you get that off my website? Yes, I did. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, uh, there's an error on my website that I need corrected, but I'm the first openly gay male professional hockey player and I have to add that in because um, otherwise I'm sexist and I don't want to be sexist. So. Well, we appreciate that. Of but course. yes, it is from your website. I was trying to do my research, but apparently it still wasn't correct. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, um, never trust the internet. <laughs> no, the internet's a scary place. <laughs> Perfect, and then, so we're just going to start with our first question here. Uh, Brock, when did you first realize that you were gay? Oh, gosh, um, I remember being six years old, and I was watching a movie with my parents, and there was a gay character, and I said to them, I said, what if I'm gay? And they said, if you're gay, you're gay, you're Brock, we love you. And I'm pretty sure I went to my room and cried. And um, uh, I sort of had that in the back of my mind growing up, but because I was so focused on hockey and, and everything else and not really, you know, in your, like, like before you hit puberty, really, you know, sex and sexuality doesn't fully, like, become developed or, or fully realized so it wasn't until a little later on when I was in my teens and and I started hearing my teammates in the locker room talk about women and different things and I was like yeah I don't really feel that and um so I think I was probably like when I was fully realized like 13 14 um but it wasn't until I was about 23 that I actually accepted it right so like you were saying, you were kind of focused on hockey and things like that. A lot of people in the LGBTQ community have said that they don't actively participate in sports culture because they feel like there's not a place for them. Do you feel that's true, even with your own experience being super involved in hockey? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, I think from my own experience, I'll, I'll touch on that first. I think hockey only got about 60% of my abilities out of me um through my teens and into like from the age of 15 until I retired I had a season ending injury every year I was incredibly depressed I was suicidal I tried to attempt I, I attempted suicide um on more than one occasion while I was playing in the OHL from the age of 18 until um 23 I drank every day I was numbing with alcohol I was incredibly depressed and went from being on NHL draft list and supposed to have this like really like big shot career to, you know, um, playing in the minors and then going over to Europe and playing in the minors. And, and it was, I think because of the language I heard on a daily basis was uh, homophobic. It was, you know, it made me feel like I couldn't be myself and it made me hate myself and it's really interesting as a hockey player in Canada you know your your identity um growing up is based off hockey people talk to you about hockey um, it's known as Brock McGillis hockey player and and 
it was fully, you know, my full identity was immersed in that. So it didn't allow me to explore the other side or accept the other side of me. And um, that definitely derailed my career 100%. I, I, to this day, like I had mono three times, like who has mono more than once. Um, so I think a lot of it, again, had, was psychosomatic. It was everything I was dealing with in my life and not being able to be myself and do what I loved. Um, for a lot of people, the sport or sports um, are a very triggering place. I was able, fortunately, I am, uh, you know, a six foot, almost six foot one, 200 pound muscular hockey bro looking guy. So I was able to conform to the culture. I was able to, you know, sort of slide in there under the radar. But for some people who may not be able to, you know, um, adhere to those masculine kind of standards that we put on in hockey or in male team sport, it can be very triggering. It could be, you know, it's if you're an effeminate gay man, which I absolutely love and think is fabulous and, um, you know, and really brave to like live that openly and honestly, you know, sports won't accept you. And, and, and I hate that term, but it's not inclusive to people who are different. And um, so if you can't adhere to the stereotypes, to the norms, then, then they're going to push you out the door. And so many people have come to me with that where they have been pushed out the door. Um, and I can't speak so much on women's sport um, as much as I can on men's. It seems from people I've spoken to, though, a much more inclusive place. But um, I'm sure they have their own things um, the same way. But in terms of men's sport, especially team sports, it's very much that way. And, and it sucks. It sucks that people don't have an outlet, you know, uh, and they can't just play a sport they like and be themselves. Like, how stupid is that? Yeah. For sure. <laughs> exactly. Um... So yeah, this past week, I think I seen you actually retweeted it. So that's how I seen it. But uh, Sean Fitzgerald of the Athletic, he came out with an article that the GTHL released. Um, what was it exactly? The the data on penalties relating to racial slurs. But within that article, there was a lot of slurs that were homophobic and se uh, sexist. So how do you believe that organizations such as the GTHL can limit that from like grassroots level? Well, first and foremost, those numbers aren't accurate. I, when I retired from playing, I ran businesses. I had a hockey off ice training business where I worked with a hundred players daily. And I had an on ice skill development business where I was working with at least half that many. And I also coached. Um, the amount of slurs I heard in a locker room um, or in the gym or on the ice was probably more than that article is quoting for an entire season. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, that's even around people who knew I was gay and were trying to be inclusive. <laughs> so it's, it's BS. Um, people aren't referees, officials aren't calling it. 
uh, um, they're not calling the penalty, it's not being enforced, and uh, so those numbers aren't real. Uh, but your question was, how do they enforce it? Like, how can like hockey at like grassroots level like limit? Uh, the issue is it, it can't just be grassroots level. It has to be, um, in my opinion, it has to be a three-tiered system. Um, and and the biggest issue is they keep having these summits and boards and committees and bullshit that doesn't change anything. It's just adults talking to adults, and and you know it's it's not shifting culture. Uh, they need to get people in locker rooms who are going to humanize issues. We just saw what happened when uh, the world, with, with, let's just take, you know, the NHL. We saw players see something so graphic and so vile as the death of George Floyd. And we saw the hurt and anguish and uprising of 400 plus years of oppression and it was very visible for the world more so than ever before because it wasn't just in you know ferguson it wasn't just in the la riots of the 90s it was the world so we saw something that was so um humanizing and that's what all these leagues and organizations and governing bodies fail to do. They fail to humanize these issues for players and coaches and management. Because here's the issue with hockey. Hockey is a bubble. Hockey is more insular than any other sport. Um, most sports are played at the school level. Hockey, even in areas where it's played at the school level, they're still pushed off into rinks away. But hockey, typically elite hockey is played, uh, you're with the same 20 kids six nights a week from the age of seven until 16. Then you move away from home and play junior where you don't know anyone except for your teammates. And you just hang out with them. And then when you come home in the off season, you train for hockey with those people you grew up with. And it's just a vicious cycle. And then you grow up and play and you're, you're taught by people who had been in the sport before you. And ex-players are usually coaches and mentors and whatnot. And then so you grow up hearing language, you grow up hearing attitudes, you grow up with the same type of people all the time. And then you become the influencer as the coach or whatever. And, and now you're passing that on to the next generation. And it's a cycle that repeats itself over and over. Whereas let's say a football team, they're in high school. Well, there might be different people from all walks of life on the football team. Um, the basketball team may share a locker room with them. The volleyball team may be there, the soccer team, the men's teams, the women's teams. There's still academics in the school. There's still, you know, gay straight alliances. There's, there's people from every walk of life. So they're, they're forced to evolve. Whereas hockey isn't. So first and foremost, they need to humanize. And this is what I've been telling them for years. And they just won't do it because they won't let people in the door to do it. They need people who have the lived experience within the sport. Because the other thing, because it's so insular, hockey players will only listen to hockey people. Um, so they need people with the lived experience, like uh, a person of co a player of color, uh, a woman who's experienced sexism within the sport, uh, being involved in it, um, a gay player, uh, 
you know, somebody who's dealt with mental illness, somebody who's dealt with, you know, abuse. And, and you get those people together and you go in and, and share these stories. From there, you start educating. And then from there, you discipline. If you start with discipline, they don't know why they're not allowed to use that. And they might know on a, like, in society, yeah, it's bad, blah, blah, blah. But they don't really understand the impact of their words. The players didn't understand the impact of not speaking up on racial injustice until the whole world stopped and they saw it. It was humanized. And that's what we need to do in the sport. And until we do, it's just going to continue. Yeah. No, I agree. And it kind of brings up the point of how even though like you said they just won't listen they still somehow participate in UC every June they'll change their logo to the pride flag and things like that our teams do that do you see that just kind of as like a cash cow type thing like marketing they just want good PR yeah I think there's probably it's it's really interesting and I've had this conversation with people at the NHL level they're they're um because they'll tell me well we're you know, we're inclusive and our, our front office does this and this and this. And I pause them and I go, okay, your front office is a corporation. Hockey culture isn't. So they're two different things. So from, from a corporate side, sure, you want, like your corporation may be inclusive, the people who work in your front office, the people who work in marketing and this, that, or the other for the organization, the corporate, that might be an inclusive environment. So great that they take part in pride and everything else, but that isn't hockey culture. That isn't that locker room. That isn't the coaches. That isn't the general manager. That isn't, you know, the athletic trainer. That isn't that whole world. Those are two different worlds who never interact so I understand why they take part from this side uh, as the corporate side. But to me, it's still until, you sh until they choose to shift the culture of the locker room, the culture of the sport, then it's performative allyship. And this is a, a term that I've heard a lot through um, uh, this the black lives matter movement and everything we've seen lately. And, and I genuinely believe this it's performative allyship and it you can sell merchandise. You can try and get more people in the seats who may not be your typical demo, you know, but putting that colored logo up is the same as somebody putting, I don't want to put them, you know, the same, but same impact as somebody putting a black square on their Instagram on two Tuesdays ago. Like it, it did nothing, it didn't solve, you know, social injustice or racism. <laughs> like it, it actually probably just showed how foolish we are. And that's how I feel about, um, about the pride logo. Is visibility great? Yeah, it is in 1998 um you know it was really needed but now we need either active participants in shifting things or just admit where you're at don't jump on on board because you think you have to or because 
you want that good PR or because you want to capitalize on merchandise sales. Like I saw a junior team and I was going across one of the major junior leagues and um, they're one of the only teams that wouldn't bring me in to speak. And this month they put up uh, a pride t-shirt and I went, so you won't work with your players on making this and you probably have gay kids in your room making a safe space for them, but you'll sell merch. I, I just don't understand it. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, kind of just like speaking back on uh, kind of putting on, it's like they're selling merch kind of stuff like that. But for instance, lately in, uh, issues of like bigotry behavior, we've seen it last night with Prust going on one of his rants again um, <laughs> in like Lepshik, his situation. Do you consider these to be NHL issues or just bad seeds within the organization? I think they're NHL issues. I think they're, they're hockey issues. And, and a lot of it isn't, again, I don't, I believe that these players for a very long time could say or do what they wanted. They haven't been taught different. If anything, the environment, the culture of hockey has reinforced those behaviors. Like we saw Brett Hull say after Leipzig, well, they're taking away the fun, you know, and, and, but th that's a guy that coached one of the all-star teams last year. Yeah, right. Y you know what I mean? And, and it was mic'd up through the whole game. And those are the types of people that go back and coach junior and coach minor hockey. So uh, it's hard to blame the players when, and, and I know they're guilty, but when they are a product of an environment that's been created and perpetuated for generation after generation. And I blame the, you know, like the Hockey Canada's, the, uh, the NHL and the USA Hockey or the Ontario Hockey Federation or each like GTHL. They're the ones who have to step up and let the people in the doors to shift this. They're the ones who have to do a better job of screening their coaches. They're the ones who have to do a better job of having accountability for coaches who have when issues are humanized and they are educated that, you know, they don't continue to arise and, and better screening systems, better s systems in place where kids and parents don't feel afraid to come forward with stories and, you know, better systems in place that um, somebody's in the room to ensure that it's a safe space. Because if, a head coach picks his staff or her staff, they, you know, it's their friends. So their friends aren't going to tell on them if they, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's putting, you know, things in place so that they, people feel comfortable sharing and engaging and, and making it so that everyone feels like they can play the game, you know, like hockey is such a great sport. Yeah. And, and I, I have so many kids that come to me struggling and I, I look at this, uh, I tell the story about this one kid who comes to me, he came to me and he was uh, struggling a lot and he was cutting himself. And um, but then he found bodybuilding and weightlifting and that kind of became his outlet, his resource, his, his empowerment tool. 
and I think about, you know, the impact, like how influential hockey is on our culture and the impact it could have. And it's not like, imagine if hockey was, wasn't just, you know, a place where people went and, and, you know, um, like it wasn't just for that straight white jock bro. And because less than 1% of the population makes money playing hockey. So it could be a place where, you know, the queer kid goes to where all people feel welcome, where Muslim kids feel welcome, where black people feel welcome. And, and, and it could be a place where like it could be empowering and, and, and it could have that, impact on our culture where everyone feels good and we talk about hockey and parents put their kids in hockey because they say oh it'll teach them work ethic and teamwork and learning from a coach like a boss why can't it teach you social skills like how to engage with people of different ethnicities and races and and sexualities and genders and all of these other things that we're going to be exposed to in our lifetime. And maybe if it did, Brandon Pruss wouldn't be saying the things he's saying and we wouldn't have had our interaction we had before. And other players like Leipzig wouldn't be, you know, saying things. And and this happens a lot. They're not the only ones. They just got caught. You know, uh, D'Angelo or whatever his name is from the Rangers, you know, and, and but you look at, these players and but maybe if if different issues were humanized for them they would be then other people would feel comfortable in the sport and then probably play at higher levels because now they feel comfortable and they work at it and and they don't just quit or go into other sports and you know they'd be exposed to differences they'd be exposed to different people and then maybe they would learn and become informed and engaged on social issues yeah, I agree with that. And kind of going off the point, like you said, that the press and the D'Angelo's of the world just kind of got caught, you know, saying these awful things. Do you think that even if somebody, you know, isn't outright homophobic or misogynistic or anything like that, the culture in the locker room makes them that way? Like, even if you come, you're a junior hockey player, you go to a team for the first time, the culture in the locker room changes you as a person? I don't think it changes you in the per- as a person. Like I, I think um, people who aren't homophobic probably won't be. It doesn't mean that they won't use homophobic language. And and I think the culture, especially today, um, like the oh, first thing I ask when I go into any locker room and actually anywhere I speak is who here knows somebody who's part of the LGBTQ plus community? And then my second question, and usually all the hands go up which is really cool to know. Uh, the second question is who here has used homophobic language or uses homophobic language? And initially people get awkward. They don't want to put their hand up, but eventually they do. Um, and they all use that language because they've all conformed to a culture. And this is all about conformity. Um, now I do an exercise and, and are there some that are homophobic? Absolutely. And, and that's okay. That's perfectly okay. But if they are the, you know, 1%, 5% and nobody else is using that language, then, um, 
we're going to get to a point where people are anti-homophobia and we'll say, you can't say that here without being looked at as maybe being gay because that's what would happen today. And, you know, it's like, again, going back to the Black Lives Matter movement and everything I've read and seen, it's about being anti-racist. And, and it's sort of similar in that regard where we have to be not just, oh, I'm not homophobic. So, well, you have to be anti-homophobic or anti-homophobia. Um, but in terms of all this, it, 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 it breaks down to conformity. Like people just fit in and they try and fit in, especially when they come in young and especially when their coaches are that way and the older players are that way, they just want to fit in. So they start using the same language as everyone else. And, um, and, you know, I can go to any mall, any school, pretty much anywhere, and I'll tell you which people play hockey. They dress the same, talk the same, walk the same. Like, it, it, there's so much conformity within the sport, but it's due to the insularity of it. And I will, you know, um, now when I go into locker rooms after I'm done sharing and humanizing issues, I try and break down some of the barriers to conformity and I have them tell me something. I say, okay, you tell me your teammates. You tell me that you're a family. Share something, or brothers, whatever they use. Share something with me you wouldn't typically tell a teammate. I had one player say um, in major junior hockey, he goes, uh, I like writing poetry. Another player on the team stood up and said, if I don't make the NHL, I'm going to be a zoologist. And then a first-year player across the room jumped out of his seat and said, I love animal documentaries. The coach stood up and said, I love Broadway musicals. My wife and I go every summer. And, and these are, this is like so non-traditional for a hockey locker room or probably a male team sport locker room that it needs to happen though. And, and they need to recognize they're more than that. And, and it needs to be okay to be more than that. Like I look at Dougie Hamilton and Dougie Hamilton's been traded twice because they say he can't fit in. And the reason they say he can't fit in is because he likes going to museums instead of partying and he likes reading and, and uh, you know, and it just boggles my mind to think, that that is a reason to trade a six foot five right hand shot defenseman who skates really well and puts up a point a game. Like it just doesn't make sense to me, but that's the conformity aspect of the sport that needs to be eradicated for all this to shift. Agreed. Yeah. I, you answered our questions, I think. <laughs> I got no more. You nailed it. <laughs> yeah, that's everything Thanks. we wanted to ask you. Did you have anything for us? <laughs> no, I mean, I just thank you for having me on. It's, uh, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, um, stay active in, on socials and whatnot. It's great. And, you know, um, hopefully we can shift this culture and, and sport cultures and make it a, you know, a safe space for everybody because uh, it, it's not there yet. Yeah. And on the men's team side, I don't think it's there for a lot of different people. Yeah, no, I totally can see that. But we just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us. We're very happy that you said yes to joining our podcast today. Of course. Happy to. <laughs> anytime. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. You as well. See you, Brock. Bye.
So we're so grateful that Brock could join us today, but we're going to go back to our regularly scheduled programming, news in the sporting world. So first off, if you live in New Zealand, we're very jealous of you because fans are allowed back into stadiums and arenas. So it's kind of an interesting take because they haven't had an active COVID case in I think three weeks, two or three weeks. Yeah, the last case was, oh, no, no, they had a case this month, but it was the last patient was cured on June 8th. Okay. Yeah. So they've been a week of no new cases and their last confirmed case was cured over a week ago. So that's interesting. I don't know how comfortable people are there, I guess, to go back into stadiums because the thing is, even if Toronto tomorrow said sports are back, everyone can go. I think there'd be some people who wouldn't want to go. I mean, it's all personal preference, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they were actually were pretty good with their lockdown on everything. They had a travel ban uh, like their borders closed basically. Um, so you could only socialize with people from your household and only essential businesses were open. So like, you know how we have like our stores, like curbside, like, I don't think they did any of that. Yeah, no, they were probably really strict the way like Italy was and France was and all those countries. And that's why they're kind of resuming life as normal again, but it's just interesting to see. And it'll be interesting to see how fall sports kind of take that because obviously the ones that are coming back now are just no fans. Like it's not happening, but yeah. things happening in the fall, if there's less cases and you know, our NFL stadium is going to be like, you know what? We will let fans back in. Maybe not with Ezekiel Elliott. I'm just testing positive. That probably won't like. <laughs> <laughs> when we say we want football and he says, <laughs> I'm going to show you something. He says, at me show. <laughs> he <laughs> says it's prop top season. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that's not the news you want to hear when, I mean, health and safety first. I don't want anyone to die in the name of sport just because sports have to come back. Like, absolutely no. not. Like, I but, would hate to see, for instance, like, Ezekiel Elliott, he gets COVID now and he's, like, he's saying he's in good health kind of thing. He's fine. He's not re really feeling the symptoms or whatever it was he was saying. He felt good. But, you like, you don't know the long-term event, like, case, like, the long term effects i've said events by the sake uh that could have them like you don't want him to have a short-lived career because he caught covid like you don't know what it does to the res respiratory system <laughs> one of those days no it's true i saw a tweet of a covid nurse saying that yeah covid can be cured but they'll come back because they're having lung collapses and things like that like it's yeah it's 99.5 percent survival rate but there definitely are repercussions to the sickness so it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the world follows back but the nbpa who is vice presidented if that's a verb by kyrie irving um they're not really confident that they want to play sports mm -hmm. again not only because of COVID. you know covid but also kind of the black lives matter thing they think the nba should be taking a higher stance but then there's other players like LeBron who say, you know, if there's basketball, I want to play it. And people think Patrick Beverly was kind of trolling LeBron saying, because he tweeted, if King James is playing basketball, we're all playing basketball. Yeah. And people alluded to the fact that they think because LeBron essentially like runs the league, that yeah. if LeBron wants to play, they'll expect everyone to play. But I don't know, like if there's no fans and they're doing testing, if you feel safe enough to play, I really don't see why you wouldn't if you don't feel safe enough to play don't like you it's not worth the money yeah 100 percent. and like i like i totally like i understand both sides of it where for instance who was in the call like donovan mitchell uh you had covid 
No, no, no. Who was in the call? It was a Zoom call on Friday where they all talked about Oh, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Donovan like Mitchell. Ha- um, Kevin Durant. That little kid yelling. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, all the players are in there, and they were they were agreeing, saying that they don't feel safe, not only because of COVID, because of Black Lives Matter. And they were saying, like, if the NBA comes back, it just, like, casts a shadow over, like, what's happening and distracts away from it. But then LeBron's saying, like, no, like, we can use basketball as, like, a stage, as, like, a platform to talk about it. So, like, well, last week I said he should be a presidential candidate. Like, I'm sure he's not going to shy away from talk about, talking about it. We've seen him with his I Can't Breathe shirt, what was it, a few years ago? Yeah, in 2016 when there was, was that Eric Garner's? Murder? Yeah. Yeah. Then they were all wearing them. Like Kobe was seen wearing one and things like that. And think like LeBron has his I Promise school. Like he's definitely an influential figure for little like girls and boys of color. So he's not somebody who's just going to be like shut up and play basketball. He absolutely will not shut up, but he wants to use basketball as a platform. He thinks more people will probably watch on TV if you're saying something versus on Twitter, right? Yeah. I even seen someone was saying that. Uh, I don't remember where I seen it. It was an article though. And basically saying, like, is LeBron saying this, like, he wants to play, like, because he actually, like, the Lakers have a chance? Is that why? Like, he wants to actually play? Probably, but. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, too. Like, Kyrie and Donovan Mitchell, like, I'm sorry, but the Nets and the Jazz are not winning the title anytime soon. So, they don't have that mentality. You know, it's not a bad thing. Like I said, their health and safety first and their mental health as well, you know? Basketball especially, like, sneaker culture and all that like people profit off of black culture especially in basketball and then expect them to shut up and play basketball like absolutely not but also like you said I think LeBron is in the mentality where it's like this is a reality to me and I'm not going to stay silent but also I would like to play versus them they're not losing anything or gaining anything because they won't win so it's like what's the point of doing this yeah yeah but kind of on the topic of Black Lives Matter there's been a lot of talk about kneeling and there's been some important players who have kind of spoken up about that yeah so with Premier League coming back Kaylee will touch on that uh right after but uh yeah Premier League was is approving uh kneeling like letting players kneel if they feel suited to and they're adding Black Lives Matter to the back of player shirts for the first 12 games I believe on the back instead of name uh places and then after that there would be a symbol of unity uh, oh, they're saying that this is a symbol of unity for the players, the staff, clubs, Premier League as a whole, yada, 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 which is cool. Um, and then, yeah, after those t- matches or so, the remaining 80 matches, is that the format for the we'll, we'll yeah, there's, there's 92 <laughs> games. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, then the next 80 games, they're going to be putting like a, like a saying, just BLM or something like that, along with uh, something for healthcare workers on the other side, I think, or something like that. Oh, nice. so, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then... Uh, you know, my boy, Baker Mayfield, is kneeling. <laughs> my boy. Because um, I am Jimmy Haslam now. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you own the Browns? <laughs> you own the Browns? Thanks, Devin Scafaz. You know what I meant to say. But, yeah, no, he's like, he's your head coach? I'm like, yeah, Stefanski's my head coach. I am I bought out Jimmy. So, cheers yeah. to that. But no, um, yeah, some fan on Instagram asked Baker, like, please confirm to Brown fans that you're not going to kneel. And then Baker said, pull your head out. I think basically pull your head out of your ass. I absolutely am. Uh, that's my quarterback. Again, I own it. And yeah, Baker was seen this past week wearing a I Can't Breathe shirt during his workouts because he's getting in shape. No more cheesecake factory. 
And uh, yeah, no, it's great though to see him actually talking out. Like we talked with Brock, how NHL players kind of once they see the humanizing of what's going on, then they spoke out. And I don't know, like I, you see a lot more. For instance, like hockey players are not against the whole Black Lives Matter movement, but they're more prone to talking against it. Whereas you have Baker Mayfield and like players from other leagues that aren't black and they're talking out like in solidarity with it. So yeah. That's all yeah, absolutely. It's nice to see them standing in solidarity too. The only problem I have with kneeling is like, if you're not going to give Colin Kaepernick a job NFL, then like, what yeah. are you doing? It's not like the problem with kneeling. It's more so like the problem with the NFL. Like when the Niners released a statement about Black Lives Matter and I was like, you literally conned Colin Kaepernick out of a job because he was kneeling. And now they're all like, Yes, if our players kneel, we stand behind them. It's like, so why didn't you stand behind Color Kaepernick? Like, can you get him a job? Like, can you get an apology? Exactly. Like, even because things are too, everyone's like, well, he might not be in the shape or whatever. Even like you said, even still, if he's not in the elite shape he needs to be to be a quarterback, whatever, A, he could probably be a backup on any team in the league, but okay. And B, he deserves an apology from not only the 49ers, but the NFL as a whole. So it's a little BS that now they're all like, yeah, we stand with our players. Like, you're the reason this whole thing started NFL because you fired a guy for kneeling. Didn't he release a video like his, like a, not a, it was like a nighttime clip of him like throwing and making, like not making passes, sorry, like just throwing the ball around because he's saying I'm still in shape. Wasn't that like a few months ago? Yeah, he had a workout with the Seahawks, I think, actually, like, yeah. last year, two years ago, when nothing came of it. And, like, yeah, Russell Wilson's elite quarterback, so obviously he wouldn't be QB1, but, like, he could be a backup. That was a few years ago? I think it was 2018, late, oh. like, earliest. It was either 2018 or last I've year. I've seen the video before, like, the George Floyd protests, before, like, the It definitely con- wasn't, like, 2020, but it was... Oh, okay. Or 2019? Yeah. Hmm. I think it was probably 2019, but, yeah, it's just, like it's very hypocritical of the league to now be all about it when like this started four years almost four years ago now and you were like so against it so whatever that's my piece but like you said Premier League's allowing players which is amazing um so they're returning I'm so excited they're playing 92 games in six weeks which is it sounds like a lot but also (laughs) like I think each team only has maybe 10 fixtures so it's not too too many it's just every the whole what 18 teams are playing like that many games so it it seems like a lot but I'm very excited um I love Premier League like I said on Nick's podcast when we were on I kind of at first was a little weary of it just because like I said Liverpool is so far ahead of everyone that it really didn't matter whether or not they played or not because even I think if Liverpool wins like literally two or three of their games they they're champions like no one will catch up to them Whatever. The problem with Premier League is that Champions League depends on it and regulation depends on it. So the top four teams in Champions League, I think two, three, and four in Premier League are all within like two or three points. And then also regulation. So the top three of the EFL come up and then the bottom three go down. So how do you determine that if you don't play? So I'm glad they're coming back for that sense and all the logistics and everything will sort out. I wonder what will happen to Champions League because that's people from all over the world, right? As much as players are from all over the world, you know, you live in England, you train in England, that's that. Well, now it's like you've got people from Italy and Spain and all that coming together for Champions League. So I don't really think that's a feasible possibility in the near future, but we'll see about that. We shall say, my darling. 
Yeah. I so, might. Speaking of soccer, there's been some controversy because women are being disrespected. Like literally what else is new? So there's been a lot of talk that MLS is back and MLS is like the first American pro league that's coming back. Wrong. Record scratch. Wrong. Because the NWSL is coming back on June 25th for their Super Cup in Utah. And we all know this and we've talked about this. But the thing that gets me is, like I said, obviously there's some big name players in the MLS. I get that. But the NWSL literally has all the females. Like some some women play abroad in like the Premier Super League and whatever and things like that. But like like Carly Lloyd, even though she, you know, said some things about Black Lives Matter and things like that. But like Sydney LaRue, Christine Sinclair, like they all play in the NWSL. So you're going to try and tell me that you're not paying attention to a league that has literally the best female soccer, Alex Morgan, like the best female soccer players in the world. And you're just like, oh, MLS is back. I barely even watch MLS. Like I do enjoy MLS. I'll go to a TFC game. Like my first ever MLS game was a Columbus crew game in Columbus. Like I enjoy MLS. But if I'm watching men's soccer, I'm going to watch Premier League. But I love the NWSL because I love women's soccer. So just the disrespect is so real. Yeah, and multiple news outlets, like, they were claiming, like, CNBC was, like, MLS, first first uh, league back. Like, no. Alta disrespect, actually. Actually, mate, that's effing disrespectful. Bloody In hell. And it. <laughs> <laughs> but truly, I was just, like, the audacity. And the thing is, like, people, I see tweets all the time, like, because, what was it? 11 years ago, a few days ago, was Kobe's first title without Shaq. So people were retweeting that video of him and Gianna. And I was like, Kobe was such an advocate for women's sports. So if you're a male sports fan and you love Kobe, you should love women's sports because he was such an advocate for women's sports. Like, Absolutely. It it just, it drives me nuts because it's like, honestly, if if you don't enjoy soccer in general, sure, yeah, you don't have to watch the NWSL. I don't mind that. But like the WNBA has some incredible players. The NWSL has some incredible players. I'm excited to see like the Toronto team and the NWHL this season. Like there's so many incredible women athletes. Even if you don't watch them, you can at least respect them. Absolutely. hundred percent. But somebody we don't respect is Rob Manfred. Not today. No. Uh, Not today. (laughs) Literally, not even. I think four days ago, he said 100% there's going to be an MLB season in 2020. Today, literally an hour ago or something like that, not <laughs> confident no, no. there will be a 2020 season. Like, I'm sorry, baseball is – we'll get into it next week. We basically know that we have no format to talk about because negotiations are done. It's out of negotiation, owner, player kind of hands, kind of thing like that. Yeah. Um, other than – like, I'll be, um, Yankees – cheating scandal judge ruled to unseal the letter talking about it we'll get into that again more like actually next week week. but no like it's just it's so upsetting because like baseball is the sport I like hold so dear to my heart beyond like hockey even though I played that and stuff in football baseball is my number one and then just to see like how they're just so like they the statement they released saying the MLBPA was not able to negotiate in good faith that 
pissed me so off. Like, oh my God. Y'all just negotiated a billion dollar TV deal and you're With saying Turner. that it's the MLBPA's fault because yeah. you won't pay your players. Like, did you see that one tweet? It was so funny. It was like, the KBO is playing is paying their players full rates to play in empty stadiums. It was obviously sarcastic. It was like sad to see that this league will go under. <laughs> Because, like, obviously they won't because they can yeah. afford to pay the players like the MLB can. They're just choosing not to. It's, it's so upsetting because, like, what does that say for future generations? But the fact that you can't negotiate a contract, uh, like, with your players, you're pushing back time. You're, like, you're letting, like, hockey is coming back. Basketball is coming back. You're letting, like, football is going to come back. You're seeing all these other leagues come back for baseball. That's pushing the baseball audience to go do something else. Like, hell, maybe I'll actually start investing in golf now. Yeah. I've been golfing daily. Why not follow the PGA now? Because baseball's not giving me anything else to do. I love you, Jordan Spieth. That's my (laughs) man. We love golf in this household. We don't love baseball in this household because they won't pay the players. No. Mm -mm. Mm -mm -mm. But like we said, we will get more into baseball next week because, quite frankly, there's not much to say because nothing's changed. They just won't pay the players. But Thanks, y'all, for joining us once again, and we will see you next week. Pablo Sanchez of the Watermelon, what's the Watermelon League and basketball, backyard baseball uh, to be the next commissioner of MLB. Thank you.